Welcome to episode 244 of the Cyber Law Podcast brought to you by Steptoe and Johnson. Thanks for joining us. Stuart Baker is indisposed this week, so we have another episode of Blockchain Takes Over the Podcast. And so, of course, as with all of our episodes, we are lawyers talking about technology, security, privacy, and government. And for this special takeover episode, we'll once again be talking all about blockchain. Uh, so today I'm joined by uh, several of my colleagues here at Steptoe. First special guest, Gary Goldshaw, who recently joined us as a partner from the Securities and Exchange Commission, uh, where he was the deputy director of the Trading and Markets Division um, and has a long uh, and illustrious history in the financial regulatory world, which we'll talk a little bit more about in, uh, uh, in the interview session uh, with Gary. Uh, second is Will Turner, uh, another new partner here at Steptoe, resident in our Chicago office, uh, bringing all sorts of corporate uh, as well as um, securities law expertise, specifically in investment uh, advisor, investment company act uh, issues uh, for our blockchain and cryptocurrency practice. Uh, welcome, Will. Uh, we're also joined by Evan Abrams from our uh, international regulatory and compliance practice, talking all things uh, anti-money laundering, know your customer, sanctions compliance, and uh, the various goings on of the New York Department of Financial Services. Uh, and Josh Oppenheimer from our financial regulatory practice, um, talking uh, more about all things going on in the financial regulatory world in blockchain and cryptocurrency. So uh, without further ado, let's uh, jump right into the news roundup and Will, I'm going to call on you first and maybe um, we'll talk a little bit about, you know, some of the things that we're seeing in the market, particularly some, some mergers and acquisitions activity, especially as we, um, as we settle into what looks like a crypto bear market. Thanks, Alan. So to engage in, in a brief amount of past speak, it's been reported that uh, M&A activity is up dramatically in 2018 as compared to 2017. Uh, in the industry, uh, and we'd like to engage in a little future speak here and uh, predict what might happen in, in 2019. Um, and well, maybe we th maybe it's it you know is it useful to think about you know analogies to other industries when we think about why we think we're seeing this mergers activity. I think that's an excellent point. Uh, to me, there there are a couple of uh, key drivers to the activity that. Uh, has taken place in 2018, and they're really not unique to the industry. You can see trends uh, in uh, uh, the activity as compared to other, at least uh, tech-driven industries. And the things that I would point to are the um, fact that many uh, potential acquirers consider it cheaper to buy than build, uh, and increased regulation generally leads to consolidation. So it's interesting. So in that way, this industry really isn't all that different from from other uh, technology uh, industries or really, really any kind of industry as a whole. I, I would agree with that. So what is industry specific is uh, the fact that uh, assets may be cheaper to buy than than build. I, I, certainly, there was a phase in the industry where it was, it was relatively uh, easy to build because uh, funds were relatively easy to acquire via ICO. Um, and and uh, if you invested your proceeds in uh, Bitcoin or Ethereum or simply left the proceeds in Bitcoin and Ethereum, uh, being long in those uh, tokens it turned out to be a, a a good economic decision for uh, for much of, of 2017, at least. Yeah, and I think we also have seen, uh, I think the bear market is beginning to bring out and demonstrate that there are some teams out there uh, that actually managed to, to nail it pretty well on the tech, uh, but maybe have struggled a bit on the management side. Uh, and there's other uh, companies that have come together with really strong management teams where maybe the tech has lagged, um, or hasn't turned out to, to have the potential that was once hoped. Yeah, I, I would agree with that as well. Uh, generally, I view consolidation as a positive uh, for the industry, be, any industry, because it, it suggests that uh, people are behaving economically rationally 
and are identifying uh, where they may have strengths that they can supplement uh, efficiently uh, through an acquisition. So what are the kinds of things that um, we lawyers would be thinking about for mergers and acquisitions in the the blockchain and cryptocurrency industry? The the industry, like uh, so many industries, is subject to regulation, but there are, of course, certain uh, regulations that are particularly acute, uh, especially for uh, non-U.S. businesses that may be uh, looking to enter uh, the U.S. market via acquisition. And so uh, if we were advising a client in that space, we would suggest that they consider um, several what I'd call hot button items uh, that have been with us for a couple of years in the industry, uh, industry and that would be uh, AML um, and um, money transmitter compliance, uh, securities law compliance, and commodities regulatory compliance. I'd also add that uh, new t- uh, this year, uh, uh, and it's really not specific to blockchain, but it's uh, uh, important for all uh, non-U.S. acquirers, are the recent uh, amendments of CFIUS regulations via FIRMA, uh, which make uh, filings under CFIUS mandatory uh, r- rather than optional uh, for uh, acquisitions in industries that are among uh, a, a number of designated categories, uh, with the important caveat being that those categories are in the process of expansion via Department of Commerce rulemaking. Yeah, very interesting to see how CFIUS regulations may impact um, acquisition activity and really investment activity in this space, uh, where there is a significant amount of overseas interest uh, in investing in U.S. companies. And entities. Probably also worth thinking about uh, tax implications um, and also some of the novel intellectual property issues that we might find here. Um, while a lot of the projects uh, are largely open source, uh, there are some proprietary uh, aspects to them. And then, of course, customer information looks different in this space, um, but still needs to be uh, handled with, uh, with care in any kind of merger acquisition kind of scenario. Yeah, I, I think th- those points are, are, are well taken um, and almost uh, taken for granted uh, by those of us in the space, but bear repeating uh, because those are issues that um, uh, surface uh, routinely, uh, not only on in the acquisition context, but uh, in the, the build context where someone is uh, starting a, uh, a business or uh, developing a new line of business onto uh, an existing platform. Yeah, no, very interesting. I mean, I think just another indication of the industry maturing and maybe taking on some of the characteristics of more traditional technology industries or even just industry as a whole. So kind of along those same lines, um, Evan, uh, we are seeing uh, some more increased joint activity among U.S. regulators thinking about things uh, like anti-money laundering and counterterrorism financing. Yes, that's right. And one interesting development uh, was a joint statement issued by a number of regulators, uh, FinCEN, uh, OCC, uh, FDIC, uh, a couple other ones, uh, encouraging use of innovative technology for Bank Secrecy Act and anti-money laundering compliance. And that statement was issued really with respect to banks, uh, but is nonetheless relevant to blockchain, I think, for a couple of reasons. One, there are banks who are either getting into the cryptocurrency and blockchain space or are looking to do so. But secondly, I think even though it's written with respect to banks, the general approach of these agencies in being supportive of innovative technology to comply with Bank Secrecy Act and anti-money laundering compliance uh, has an obvious analogy to be brought to the cryptocurrency and blockchain space where so much of what's going on is highly innovative. So what do you what you know what do you take away from this joint statement anything different or new or just kind of a continued you know, maybe tightening of the uh, of the of the reins in in respect to this industry. So the statement overall was very positive with respect to companies, uh, particularly banks, engaging in new and innovative approaches and bringing new technology like artificial intelligence, for example, to bear on their compliance. 
Uh, and there were a couple interesting points with respect to that. Um, the, the statement said that these type of new innovative approaches will not uh, lead these entities to be penalized if they don't end up working out. Uh, and on the flip side of that, if they do end up working out and they, for example, identify suspicious activity that was going on that was not previously being caught under existing compliance programs, uh, that in and of itself will not lead supervisors to say that what a bank or an entity was doing before this new innovative approach was insufficient. Yeah, what's interesting, and you can kind of read it from the from the language of, of what's being said, is it's really it's it is recognizing and acknowledging that banks can and should be engaging with this industry, and that there are ways to do that, not only safely, um, but perhaps even in ways that help illuminate uh, what's going on in the industry and help fill out the information picture, not just for banks, but for for law enforcement regulators also. That's right. And I think as people who have been in the cryptocurrency space have been saying for a while, if you take a really rigorous approach to cryptocurrency, you can get a much richer and fuller picture in many instances uh, of what's going on than you can in the traditional fiat world. And so there is potential to bring some of these new technologies and really up what institutions are doing with respect to suspicious activity, counter-terrorist financing, and so forth. Yeah, and it's interesting. I mean, in this industry, it's always a balance to be struck between um, the types of uh, privacy and, um, uh, and integrity features that the technology brings, um, but also the ability for the technology to help kind of advance shared interests of not allowing the technology to be used uh, for financing terrorism um, for evading sanctions, uh, for and for a variety of other types of, of unlawful activities. Yeah, absolutely. All, always a balance there with respect to privacy, uh, sometimes just with respect to how easy it is to access the technology and engage with it. And so weighing those uh, is always key for businesses who are getting into the space. And so interestingly, along the same lines, uh, the Office of Foreign Asset Control uh, came out with a recent blocking order that actually is kind of custom made to drop right into the the kind of automated systems that uh, a lot of blockchain and cryptocurrency uh, industry participants use uh, to screen for that type of activity. That's right. So OFAC, for the first time ever, a couple of weeks ago, in designating new individuals, especially designated nationals, put out specific uh, wallet addresses that were linked to those designated persons. And that's the first time they've done this. And anytime there's a blocked person put out by OFAC, when assets of those blocked persons are within the possession or control of a U.S. person or within the United States, they're required to be blocked. Uh, so by adding the, the, the wallet address to those blocked persons, it's just making it that much easier for people who are required to comply with those OFAC regulations to actually take those steps identify whether or not they might have assets on their platform or within their custody or control uh, that are linked to those designated persons and then actually go forth and, and take the step of blocking those assets. Yeah, it's also an interesting indicator that, um, uh, that OFAC's been doing some of their own homework uh, in order to understand that those wallet addresses are linked to those individuals and, and that other identifying information. Yes, absolutely. And just as a more general point, I think we're seeing the world of economic sanctions and cryptocurrency converge more and more. Uh, OFAC sanctioned the Venezuelan Petro a while back, the cryptocurrency that uh, Venezuela put out. There have been rumblings about other sanctioned jurisdictions like Iran or Russia considering different types of cryptocurrencies they might use to uh, get around U.S. sanctions. And so I think the area of uh, cryptocurrency is something that OFAC and other U.S. agencies who are really focused uh, on sanctions are looking at more and more. And so along, so turning now to kind of the state level, you know, we've taken the opportunity uh, on previous times when we, when blockchain has taken over the podcast, uh, maybe to bash a little on the New York Department of Financial Services for the, just the glacial pace uh, that they've taken in terms of issuing bit licenses. Um, after having put out kind of a very comprehensive set of regulations that made the industry very uncomfortable, they kind of 
buttressed that discomfort by you know having these these licenses come out and very infrequent trips and drafts but that wasn't really the the case that we saw in 2018 was it no there was more licenses and approvals granted in 2018 than there have been previous some of those are people actually went through the whole bit license application process but there's also been entities who are regulated under other parts of the new york banking law uh, Signature Bank, for example, who's uh, chartered under uh, New York State, uh, was able to get a bit license. And if you're already regulated in another aspect of New York banking law, you just need approval from the Department of Financial Services to move into the blockchain or cryptocurrency space. And so it's seen as a little bit easier than going through the whole bit license application process. Um, of course, to actually be chartered uh, as a bank or a similar uh, financial institution is uh, quite an ordeal in and of itself. But for entities who are already in that space, uh, it's seen as a slightly easier path. Yeah. So this is entities that might want to be considered a bank or maybe or a, um, a, a depository trust or some other type of financial services industry participant that may also want to handle cryptocurrencies. That's exactly right. And one very interesting development uh, from earlier this month is uh, Fortune magazine actually sent the Department of Financial Services a FOIA request asking about specific numbers of applications. And so really for the first time in years, there's some specific data on how many applications there have been and how many have been granted. Uh, so just to highlight that briefly, according to the, the responses FOIA request, there's been 36 applications since the launch of the bit license. Uh, there have been 10 issued bit licenses, there have been five denials, and then the rest are still under review. So uh, more than half are still under review. There's also been a real slowdown in the pace of people who are applying, 26 applications in the first year, and then since then, only 10 applications. And I think that speaks to the general perception in the industry that getting a bit license uh, is very difficult to do, and they're pretty significant compliance burdens. And so it's been common practice for a lot of entities to just avoid the state of New York. And I think that's reflected in that kind of downward trend in license applications. Yeah. So any thoughts on what we might see in 2019? Well, the bit license is supposedly under review. Uh, it's not clear when or if anything additional will come out on that. But I think there is a lot of pressure for additional guidance. When the bit license came out, there were some frequently asked questions that were posted on the DFS website. But they don't really add much beyond the regulations themselves. They just kind of summarize the regulations. And so, especially as technology has evolved pretty considerably since the bit license was initially issued, there's a lot of novel questions that people are struggling with. There's some kind of key terms in the bit license that are undefined. And so I think there's going to continue to be pressure on the agency to do something more, some type of public guidance or tweaks to the regulations, something of that variety, just to help uh, these companies who are trying to figure out if and, and how they fit under this regime. Yeah, no, very interesting. What's interesting to me about um, 2019 to, again, engage in, in future speak is you know, businesses as capitalist enterprises need to make cost-benefit analyses uh, on uh, their expenditures, and that includes regulatory spend, of course. Uh, and so uh, to the extent that uh, businesses are perceiving uh, that a bit license is uh, either incredibly costly or impractical to obtain, it's economically rational for them to decide to r remain out of the New York market, even though it is uh, otherwise a very attractive capital market. Uh, so as uh, more businesses have achieved licensure, if on top of that, uh, DFS uh, provides some meaningful guidance, it, it, it may have a, a real uh, may, may create a real tipping point uh, in terms of the cost-benefit analysis and incentivize uh, more businesses uh, to apply, uh, which in some ways I would, I would think would uh, help achieve uh, some of the objectives of the NYDFS in uh, creating the licensure regime to begin with. Yeah, I think that's right. I mean, we've had three years of, of kind of, uh, of experience under that regime, a lot of development in uh, in the area, a lot more comfort among the regulatory community generally uh, about this asset class, and and I think that's right. I think we've seen where 
regulators have encouraged a regulated market to develop um, and have had greater insight um, into the markets that's had a beneficial impact on the industry. And I think that that's where New York State was trying to get to, maybe a bit ham-fisted at the beginning, but it would be great if, um, uh, if some additional guidance in 2019 would help spur that along. All right, and so finally, a few last pieces um, back up to the federal level. The Commodity Futures Trading Commission released a primer on smart contracts. What were they uh, what were they talking about? That's right, Alan. In late November, while we were still all recovering from our Thanksgiving comas, uh, the CFTC's Lab CFTC released a primer on smart contracts. For those who don't know, the Lab CFTC is the Commodity Futures Trading Commission's go-to resource for all things financial technology. It was launched in May 2017 and is designed to make the commission more accessible to fintech innovators. Yeah, and I think that the that um, it has helped give the CFTC um, a, a kind of a changed reputation as being a friendlier home for uh, for cryptocurrency uh, and blockchain industry companies. So at the end of November, it released uh, this primer on smart contracts, following a different primer published last year on virtual currencies. Basically, these primers lay out the CFTC's understanding of these technologies, but they're not official policy statements. They're just educational tools. And so what, what's kind of the, what are your big picture takeaways from, from this primer? Yeah, so the primer is pretty expansive. It talks about the history of smart contracts, the characteristics, and their potential everyday uses. But the big takeaway is that smart contracts are legal documents or legal processes uh, that the federal government and specifically the CFTC will regulate. Yeah, no, and very interesting. And I think that um, by by saying that they'll regulate, in a sense, creating uh, more regulatory certainty around their use, especially as contractual instruments. Again, it could definitely cause uh, some, some beneficial activity uh, within the industry. You're also looking at... Um, at uh, Josh, the, uh, the some, some activity by the G20 leaders uh, about crypto asset regulation. What's going on there? That's right. Uh, earlier this month, leaders of the G20, the group of the 20 largest economies, met in Argentina and agreed to police crypto assets to prevent money laundering and the financing of terrorism. Yeah. So I mean, the those countries that are members of the G20, it's it's a bit uneven across them about how they how they approach. Um, cryptocurrency regulation within their own jurisdictions. That's right. And it wasn't until this past March when France first publicly brought up, you know, debating crypto crypto and crypto assets. Japan is definitely pushing for this. They're one of the uh, larger countries that have really embraced cryptocurrency and crypto asset regulation. And it's going to be interesting to see because they, Japan, will be the next leader of the G20. Um, so it'll be, we should be you know, focused on how it will continue to push for international regulation. And so what could the G20 do under kind of Japan's leadership in this area? Um, well, what they're what they're really pushing to do now is kind of set baseline regulations. What the G20 did this this past meeting was agree to follow standards set forth by the Financial Action Task Force. This is a big deal because the task force has insight into different regulatory approaches and constantly receives input from industry stakeholders. Yeah, and that FAD, uh, that group FATF um, is uh, is a broader group that regulates that seeks to to kind of create regulatory harmony across a range of different financial regulations. And they've done some work in the virtual currency space before, but as with much of the material that's been put out in the space, it's already become a little bit outdated. And there was a, a recent statement uh, in the last couple months that FATF put out. Uh, didn't have a lot of meat on the bones, but the kind of rumblings around the organization seem to be that in 2019, they're going to look to do uh, some more specific actions in this space. And so I think keeping an eye out for guidance from FATF is going to be an interesting thing to watch for in the new year. Yeah. So, Josh, so that that intersection between uh, an, an interested G20 and a uh, invigorated FATF could produce some some interesting results on the international stage. Absolutely, and and we'll see if that if the international stage drives the domestic front. Yeah, that will be very interesting to see. And of course, we've seen cantons in in Switzerland agree to take uh, to accept cryptocurrency for tax payments, uh, but we actually started to see that 
right here in the USA recently, right? That's right. Uh, Ohio is set to become the first state in the country, actually, to accept tax payments using cryptocurrency. Under their system, businesses, and right now it's only businesses, not individuals, operating in Ohio can register online and make cryptocurrency payments to Ohio State Treasurer's Office on 23 different related taxes, whether that's taxes on cigarette sales or employee withholding. So I'll have to see if this uh, turns out to be a novelty or if it really um, is kind of the an early signal of a larger trend that we might see across states. That's right. I mean, right now, Ohio is only accepting Bitcoin uh, as their cryptocurrency for payment. But as you said, it'll be interesting to see if other states catch on. Ohio is trying to establish itself as the as the blockchain Bitcoin capital of the country. So very interesting and, you know, kind of joining the competition among uh, states as varied as uh, as Delaware, uh, Illinois, Arizona, obviously Wyoming, and maybe New York all the way over on the other side. So uh, so very interesting to see. Well, good. Uh, so thanks, um, uh, Will and Evan and Josh, for a, a, a great roundup of, of things that are going on. Um, why don't we turn now to a little bit more of an in-depth discussion uh, with Gary Goldschull. Gary, let me first, uh, first I'll start by welcoming you to step toe into the, the blockchain and cryptocurrency practice here. Oh, great. Well, thrilled to be here. Um, and maybe if I could ask you to give maybe give folks maybe a minute or two about your background and, and kind of what kinds of what kind of insights you're 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 joining us with. Sure. Well, I've actually returned to Steptoe and Johnson, as you know, after 23 years as a financial regulator in a variety of different capacities. Most recently, I left the SEC, as you pointed out in the introduction. But prior to that, I was general counsel of the MSRB. I spent and over what is the fifth, MSRA? Uh, you know, of course, the Municipal Securities Rulemaking Board. And in fact, much of my uh, regulatory career is a bit of alphabet soup with various federal uh, agencies, as well as uh, two self-regulatory organizations, the MSRB, as well as my my work with FINRA, the Financial Industry Regulatory Association. And I I left Stepto in 1995 to join the CFTC, Commodity Futures Trading Commission, which is a significant part of the firm's practice here today. Yeah, so you've really had a walk uh, among a number of the different agencies, in particular CFTC, FINRA, and SEC, that are kind of uh, in the headlines on blockchain and cryptocurrency, crypto asset issues. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, one of the things that I've always enjoyed about my time in the regulation world was the opportunity to work with really smart people on some real cutting edge and, and novel issues. And whether it was uh, you know, issues relating to the internet, uh, you know, back in the late 90s or, you know, blockchain and and, and DLT in, uh, you know, recent years and, and all the developments in between really has been very fortunate to work with um, on some really interesting issues. You had the opportunity to work directly with, um, with the task force or specific working group within SEC that's looking at blockchain and cryptocurrency issues, right? Sure, yes. Well, so the SEC has been been quite active in this space both on the enforcement side as, as well as issuing guidance in various forms. And, you know, one of the things SEC does internally is, is make sure that it has the necessary offices and divisions and staff coordinating with each other so that it is considering all the implications of the activity that it sees. And I think, you know, one of the things that I did uh, during my time uh, at the SEC was really to carry forward Throughout the agency, the concerns or issues that are raised by the division of trading and markets, issues that could, you know, include such things as broker-dealer registration, registration as an exchange or an ATS, issues you know, around potentially around custody, and other, you know, intermediaries, um, sales practice concerns that that could be raised. So, it really gave me a good chance to be kind of an ambassador to other parts of the agency about the particular areas within the division of trading and markets, as well as to work with other offices and take their issues and, and their developments uh, back to my colleagues within the division of trading and markets. Yeah, no, very interesting. It's been really interesting to watch the SEC, maybe from a bit of a, of a late start, really jump into this area with two feet um, and, uh, and begin working in a number of different directions. So one of the one of the directions that that people that has been most visible to people uh, has been the uh, enforcement division's action around initial coin offerings um, and tokens. And what's your you know? Can you give a, a a summary of kind of what's gone on in that space and where you think that's going? Sure, happy to. 
I think one of the lingering questions throughout 2018 was what was going to happen from the SEC's perspective to all the unregistered ICOs. You know, there, were, there were numerous statements by SEC staff and even Chairman Clayton that nearly all ICOs were securities. I guess to an extent that might be useful going forward um, to those who listened, but it didn't really address what will happen to all the ICOs that were already out there in existence. And this was, um, I think, laying a significant cloud over ICO issuers broadly. Yeah, so this, I don't- was, this was back at the end of 2017, early 2018, and it definitely cast a pall over the industry without a real clear sense of, well, what are we supposed to do? Right. So we had two cases uh, that were uh, issued or part of a settlement uh, just um, in, in November. Um, I'm not going to go into the facts of the cases uh, beyond maybe saying that Paragon was established to somehow bring blockchain to the cannabis industry, to the cannabis industry and Air Fox focused on the mobile telecom industry. What I will focus on is that the settlement seemed to offer a path forward with three basic elements. First, the issuer will seek to register the securities under the Exchange Act of 1934 and provide the kind of ongoing periodic reports that one typically associates with, with public companies. Second, this path involves a civil monetary penalty. In this case, both issuers were required to pay a penalty of $250,000. And third, the issuer must offer investors. Uh, in the case of Airfox, this will be about 2500 and in the case of Paragon, about 8000 who purchase tokens as part of the ICO with the right of rescission. If you, if you permit me to become legal for a few moments here, Section 12A of the 1933 Act states that an issuer conducts an offering of securities in violation of Section 5, the registration provisions, is liable to each purchaser in the amount equal to the purchase price plus interest, or if the purchaser has sold the security, their net loss from the investment. What I find interesting about the rescission process here is the SEC is going to be taking an active role in overseeing the process for notifying investors of their of their claim process as well as monitoring the acceptance of those claims. Um, you know, IC issuers generally have a different relationship with their investors than those, I think, in more traditional financing arrangements. So I'm very curious to see how successful or effective the issuers are going to be in reaching investors and then the willingness of investors to participate in the claims process. My hope is if we um, the information about this process will be revealed in the periodic filings that each issuer will be required to make as a public company. Yeah, it's really interesting. These two cases suggest, and it's interesting that the SEC kind of issued them first, that, you know, there's a, there's a clear path if companies want to concede or accept that uh, the tokens that they issued um, were, in fact, securities. Um, and, you know, that, this, that for whatever else was written in the documents, that ultimately this was a capital formation activity. Um, and that um, that at the end of the day, the token should be registered and treated like any other security. And that's that kind of um, goes into some of the questions folks have been talking about in terms of um, security token offerings, but also a real um, question about you know the viability of the concept of the utility token. Absolutely. You know, one of the things that on my sort of end of the year wish list is for the SEC to give some guidance on what a utility or a consumptive token is. I think intuitively we all know that such a thing can exist, but we haven't seen the SEC bless one yet. And I think it's going to be very, very helpful to the industry when the SEC articulates what it sees as a utility or consumptive token. I think it's going to be helpful for those who think that they can offer a consumptive token and perhaps equally helpful for those that thought they could achieve they what did. would be <laughs> a consumptive token to find out, in fact, the SEC's view on what it is might not align with with, with theirs. Yeah, I think that's interesting. I mean, Jay Clayton in his statements way back uh, in December and January talked about a, a token that, that kind of powered a book of the month club. Um, and Bill Hinman in his speech in June talked about well, talked about uh, Ether specifically, the, the native uh, currency of the Ethereum protocol, uh, which is not just a, a, a currency like Bitcoin, but also has you know, utility properties of the kind that people think about when they think about utility tokens. Uh, but beyond that, it's been pretty spare in terms of what does this actually mean? Well, I think blockchain 
as a technology offers a great opportunity for people to exchange value and, and receive things. So when you can use that aspect of the technology and strip it away from the price appreciation or the investment aspect to it, uh, I think we're going to see an opportunity to, to have this technology used in ways that we haven't seen before. And it's interesting, you talked about your wish list. Kind of on my wish list is there have been foreign jurisdictions that have recognized or at least have spoken uh, about the idea that there, uh, that there may be kind of three categories of tokens, uh, uh, currency uh, tokens like uh, cryptocurrencies, Bitcoin, um, asset tokens, securities or commodities, or other kind of financial instruments, uh, but util- and then utility tokens. But they have been slow to articulate um, beyond kind of basic definitions in, uh, in guidance documents, not only what does it mean to be a utility token, but what is a prudential oversight and supervision regime that would apply to a utility token as opposed to a cryptocurrency or an asset token? No, very, very uh, good observations. And one of the things that I've been concerned or, or closely watching is the extent to which these utility or consumptive tokens were not securities, what regulatory regime would apply to them? I think you spoke recently of a book of the month club. I would think that that would be perhaps regulated by FTC or various state regulations. I don't think we'd want to see the SEC getting involved or other federal financial regulators well, getting involved that. in the book of the month club issues. That could, uh, that could be a real shock to all of, uh, all of the book of the month club participants out, in, um, out across the country. So if you had to kind of peer into a into a crystal ball, do you think that's in the in the cards for 2019 in terms of uh, on the token side? Yeah, I, I think I think we will see. I think we will see that. You know, the SEC staff has been hinting for some time that they are going to be issuing guidance to this this industry or the, the market. This request for guidance has been really going on since the Dow report in 2017. The DAO, the Decentralized Autonomous Organization, um, a uh, this was a, a concept um, that was uh, that was floated back in the spring of 2016 uh, that you would have a, a uh, almost like a venture fund that people could buy tokens um, and uh, and vote on uh, on investments by this fund and, and the, the most novel thing was not only was it blockchain based but there were no people involved it was just a protocol. And uh, the the founders intended to raise uh, $500,000 um, worth of Ether by selling these DAO tokens, uh, and they ended up raising uh, what about $150 million worth of Ether. Uh, before we could get into all of the, the good juicy securities law issues about that, there was a, a quote-unquote hack, and uh, about $36 million worth of Ether was stolen, and, and that drew all the focus. But took the SEC about a year, but they issued a report in July of 2017, uh, kind of going through why it was that that, uh, that DAO token was, in fact, a security. And that was really the SEC's kind of um, first foray into, um, into larger guidance to the industry about what may or may not constitute an sec- uh, uh, investment contract uh, or a security under U.S. securities law. Right. And, no. and, and I think for, for those of us that were... Uh, in private practice at the time that report uh, w- was issued, the the staff subsequently uh, took the position that uh, the report, which I thought was very thoughtful, um, put uh, issuers and practitioners on notice of the SEC's position. And really, the staff often viewed uh, the behavior of uh, issuers and other actors in the space differently if it was before the uh, report was issued, uh, what some people now refer to as pre-DAO, uh, <laughs> and after uh, the the report uh, was issued. So, Gary, do you envision something similar with uh, future staff guidance? So that's that's very that's a very interesting point, and I think we're going to talk a little bit later about uh, a case involving a, a decentralized exchange, the Ether Delta uh, decision, in which the SEC, in its settled order, drew a distinction between activity that occurred on the platform pre-DAO and, and post-DAO. So I think as, as more time passes from the DAO report, it becomes, I think, less of a relevant consideration. But to, to you know, speak to the issue that both of you just identified, the SEC does seem to recognize that it needs to 
give guidance to the industry. And when there is ambiguity, it might it might hold back a little bit on some of its enforcement or other activity. Yeah. So turning to to the Ether Delta case and the lar- this larger question about enforcement activities and regulatory guidance around exchanges. Um, there's obviously two kinds of, of exchanges. You have centralized exchanges that um, that, that um, may or not may not have custody of funds, but but kind of actively participate in matching uh, buyers and sellers. And then you have these decentralized exchanges. And the SEC has been active um, in both areas um, in terms of, of of trying to give guidance um, to to both types uh, of exchanges. But um, it was very interesting to see the Ether Delta case come out because decentralized exchanges are relatively new um, and uh, kind of almost felt like the SEC was getting out of the kind of catch up posture and, and trying to lean a little bit forward into uh, into things that are coming in this space. I don't know if you thought the same way, Gary. Not necessarily. I mean, I think the issue of a centralized or decentralized exchange was something that was more a creation of the industry itself and less a, a function of the of the legal regime in which you know in which the the um, which these entities operate, you know the statutory definition of an exchange includes a marketplace or facilities for bringing together purchasers and sellers of securities. And the regulation ATS release in 1998, which I had a chance to reread over the weekend, given the lovely weather we had here in Washington, <laughs> um, you know, it talks about. The statutory definition and Rule 3B16 uh, that it adopted to interpret the statutory definition in light of market developments. And I think the thrust of the 3B16 rule is to define exchange as an entity that brings together the orders for securities for multiple buyers and sellers and uses established non-discretionary methods, whether by trading facility or by setting rules under which the orders interact and the parties agree to the terms of the trade. So if one looks at what Ether Delta did, it's pretty easy to see how the SEC viewed Ether Delta as an exchange. You know, the fact that the transfer of securities occurred through smart contracts or through an entity that doesn't have custody of the securities really is immaterial. Again, also, if you think about the the national securities exchanges such as NYSE and NASDAQ, they're not acting as custodians of the securities that are trading on the exchanges. So I, I feel in some ways this decentralized, centralized exchange as a, as a way to differentiate Certain parties from the application of the the law might have been a little bit misdirected. That's really interesting because I think that within the industry, there's there's this sense that decentralized exchanges are uh, are a different animal and pose kind of different questions, or even may not fall within the the traditional regulatory structure. And so it's interesting you say to to really to point out how, in fact, that may just not be the case. Again, I can, when you go back and you look to see what the definition of an exchange is and how the SEC has approached it and how it has interpreted it, it, it is a little hard to understand how the, the decentralized nature really impacts the analysis all that much. Yeah. So the other thing that, that, that um, as you know, because we've talked about it, intrigued me about the Ether Delta, um, uh, Ether Delta decision was um, well, there was a lot of specificity around around you know the provisions you discussed and a very compelling argument as to why you know decentralized versus centralized is immaterial. The decision kind of assumes without specifically stating that securities were trading uh, were being you know it w- that the that ether delta was enabling the trading of securities, simply assuming that one or more of the tokens that were being enabled for trading were in fact securities, even though there's not been a decision. Uh, from the SEC that um, those tokens were or were not secured. Yep. No, I'm, that was one of the first things that you came to me when you saw the decision and said, Gary, it doesn't tell me what the securities are. And I, as I said then, and I'll sh- share now, I, I, you know, the reason for that is, is because for the SEC to say that a particular digital asset is a security would have a very significant and pronounced effect on that asset. And for that statement to occur in a process in which the issuer is not involved, where the issuer cannot rebut various findings that the SEC might make, cannot produce facts, cannot challenge legal conclusions, really would deprive that issuer of, of all the due process and other rights you would expect the government to 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 exercise in, in its 
in its uh, enforcement and regulatory activities. And so while I certainly appreciate everyone's disappointment that this case <laughs> did not identify among the 2,500 assets that trade on the platform, which were securities, I think when you, you think more deeply about what the implications of that would have been in a process where those issuers were not involved, perhaps you'll take greater comfort in the fact that that did not happen. Yeah, no, no, definitely. I mean, I think that the that it would have certainly been a violation of due process to have not involved the, the issuers in some way in that in that decision. Um, but it does also leave something of a gap for other exchanges, whether um, centralized exchange operators or um, uh, administrators of decentralized exchanges about, you know, if they are to call their their token offerings, uh, on what grounds should they call them? It did seem, though, that there was so- something of a warning shot about ERC-20 tokens, the tokens that, um, that uh, adhere to the ERC-20 standard, which is an interoperability standard for tokens that, that work on the Ethereum uh, uh, fungible tokens that work on the uh, on the Ethereum platform. I'm not sure I see it quite that way. I think many of the tokens were ERC20 was a very popular platform for for tokens to be issued and traded during that time. Uh, the the Ether Delta smart contract was written on the ERC20 platform. So I, I'm not sure that that might be more a, a factual coincidence than it is really a a legal distinction that will be drawn. Interesting. Yeah, because for our, our listeners, um, you know, ERC-20 tokens, again, ERC-20 is a standard for interoperability on um, on the Ethereum protocol. Um, if you create a and use an ERC-20 token, you're using Ethereum as your as your base protocol. There are other tokens where um, the developers or the, the, the issuers has, act, has actually coded its own protocol. Um, and there's a lot of question within the industry as to what is the legal significance of that. Um, and so I guess we'll, um, we'll have to wait and see what else the SEC has in store for the industry to, to get more insights on that. So, Gary, uh, just to delve into your uh, New Year's uh, wish once again, I, I take it the hope is for guidance that doesn't come in the enforcement context and that the staff might be a little freer to, uh, to give a broader uh, scope guidance without the concern of infringing upon any individual issuers or other actors' rights? Sure. One of the challenges the SEC faces in in giving guidance is that this is a very fast-evolving space. And the SEC often addresses new issues in notice and comment rulemaking, which affords the agency an opportunity to hear from all interested and affected parties. Uh, Without such a process, there's a heightened risk that guidance the SEC might issue will be based on less than complete and full information. I don't think for a number of reasons that rulemaking is practical this instant for cryptocurrencies or or blockchain, um, but the SEC will want to make sure that any guidance it issues um, is, is, is as informed as possible. Again, it's, it's much easier in the context of an enforcement action where the SEC has all the information to issue guidance or a statement, I think that's why you've you've seen that their practice in the past. So, you know, more holistic guidance around crypto would be significantly more difficult. That all said, I'm encouraged by statements from SEC staff that such guidance is anticipated in in 2019, and I believe early 2019. I do wonder how much that will add to the legal dialogue. That exists today, but we will uh, we will certainly see. One area where I hope they will give guidance is on custody. So the SEC has has said what it thinks is a security and what it thinks is an exchange and what to do if you've issued an ICO in violation of the registration provisions. What they haven't addressed is how digital assets should be custodied, digital whether they're securities or or non securities held by one of their their registrants. Uh, the issue was raised in a staff letter from the Division of Investment Management in early 2019, so we know it's on their mind. 2018? 2018, correct. Sorry. So that, that really is quite a crystal ball. <laughs> <laughs> But I'd really love to see them issue guidance. So, you know, custody is taking place right now, but without any input or, or guidance from the SEC. My biggest worry, and I think this is one of the points that you maybe you're getting at, Will, is that there'll be some custody failure or event that will animate the SEC or other regulators to issue guidance. 
And in that case, the guidance will be heavily focused on what had happened in the past and not necessarily that thoughtful, more measured guidance that is forward-looking and helps helps the industry thrive and helps helps um, provide the necessary guidance to the industry. Yeah. So, I mean, to, as you said, though, it's much easier for, in a sense, it's much easier for the enforcement division to look at a specific instance. Do you think that uh, more of a notice and comment type of process could take place for custody? Um, or is there, are there any things that you see that the industry do, could do to encourage that? Sure. Well, well, notice and comment rulemaking is one thing. Another process could be interpretive or no action guidance. And in that case, parties will submit letters and there'll be usually a series of drafts going back and forth between the agency and the requesting party. And so while that may not offer the public exposure, it certainly allows the affected party in this case to really you know, develop and, and drive down all the key issues in a back and forth. Yeah. So good. Well, with our last minute, let me ask you, you know, other projections that you see for 2019 or last items on your wish list um, that you're looking for for this industry in the coming year? No, I think I've really covered those. I guess my my number one wish list is to see guidance around custody. I think it's been an area that's been identified as critical to the forward progress in the industry and to to start that dialogue about what is effective custody with the SEC and other regulators, I think is very, very important. And I think that, that, that the time is now ripe for that discussion to commence. Well, this has been great, Gary. Thanks so much for sharing uh, your insights around this area. And I think for, um, uh, for frequent and regular listeners to the podcast, we've now reached sufficient critical mass um, that we can begin arguing with each other uh, over these issues. <laughs> Um, and so hopefully you will join us in subsequent episodes uh, when we when blockchain takes over the podcast to hear just such arguments. So uh, overall, again, thank you to Gary Goldshaw. Thank you to Will Turner, Evan Abrams, Josh Oppenheimer uh, for joining us today. Uh, this has been episode 244 of the Cyber Law Podcast brought to you by Steptoe and Johnson. Don't forget, uh, suggest a guest interviewee, and we may send you the highly coveted Cyberlaw podcast mug, uh, which I guess Gary will have to get you one of these oh, now. Excellent. Um, send your questions, comments, and suggestions to cyberlawpodcast at steptoe.com. Uh, get involved on Twitter uh, by following at Stuart Baker. Please, please, please rate the show and leave a review on iTunes, on Google Play, uh, or wherever you get your podcasts. This helps new listeners find us, and it also gives us valuable feedback. Uh, so coming up, nothing. Uh, holiday hiatus. We'll be back in January with uh, with new episodes. Um, and finally, our show credits. Thanks to Lori Paul and Christy George, our producers, to Doug Pickett, our audio engineer, uh, to Michael Beaver, our intern. Um, and thank you to me, uh, uh, Alan Cohn, your fill-in host, um, on behalf of Stuart Baker, thanking all of you uh, for joining us through all of 2018 and we hope that you'll join us again next time in 2019 uh, as we once again provide insights into the latest events in technology, security, privacy, and government.